Hey, good morning. Welcome to Faith on Hill's online Sunday morning service. We gather together every Sunday morning at 10.30 a.m., both online and in person. Now, just the other day was Veterans Day, and I know that we have several veterans in our church and several others who represent veterans in our church. And so we want to stop, pause, remember, and say thank you for your service or the service of the loved one that you represent. Now, next Sunday is Sides Giving. Now, Sides Giving is this thing that we do the Sunday before Thanksgiving, and it's sort of a a potluck, bring and share idea after church. And it's the idea is this. If you have like a favorite Thanksgiving side dish that's been like the family staple for decades upon decades, you could bring that. If you want to test out something completely new, but you're like, hey, before I inflict this on my family, I want to see if people like it, you could bring that. We will have, uh, the church is going to provide drinks and some stuff for like turkey sandwiches, um, but everybody else is going to bring mashed potatoes, gravy, um, stuffing, uh, whatever you want to bring, pumpkin pie, whatever you feel up to bringing, uh, bring that along and we will eat together in the fellowship hall after church next Sunday. So hey, if you've been watching online and you're thinking, I don't know, when's a good Sunday to check it out in person? What a great Sunday. You can eat with us, get to know us, and hang out. So that is next Sunday after church. So church, normal time at 10.30 a.m., and then sides giving directly after. Last week, we finished up the book of the the letter to the church in Philippians. Turn one page over the letter to the church in Colossae. It's called the book of Colossians. We're going to start studying that this Sunday as we look at Colossians chapter 1. Everyone has or needs a reason or a motivation to do anything. If you go somewhere, if you do something, or maybe you stand firm in a conviction to not move, to not do a thing, there has to be a reason, a conviction why that is. I believe that The heart of the letter to the church in the city of Colossae, known as the book of Colossians, is this. Because Jesus died. Because Paul and the people he was writing to shared this conviction that Jesus had died and risen again. Because Jesus had died to forgive our sins. Because Jesus died and invited us into God's family. Because of that, we live this way. Because of that, we believe these things. Because of that, this is how we act or operate. This week, as we look at chapter 1, we're going to talk about because Jesus died, we are called. Now, in verse 1, it says, Paul, an apostle, that means a messenger of Jesus Christ by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to God's holy people in Colossae, the faithful brothers and sisters in Christ. Grace and peace to you from God our Father. We are called first to believe the gospel. The gospel is this, 
Gospel means good news. And the good news of the Christian faith is that we believe God created this world. This whole universe for that matter. But this world. And he created in it a place for his creation, humanity. But humanity rebelled against God. And in that rebellion, we fell into the curse of sin and death. But God, because he loved people so much, wasn't content to let that be the end of the story. And so he set about this rescue plan that culminated in God himself becoming a human, Jesus Christ, living among his fallen creation, experiencing their pains and their joys, their triumphs and their sufferings knowing what it was to be one of us. And yet he never sinned. And when he died on the cross, he did so as a perfect, spotless, pure sacrifice so that the justice of God could be satisfied, the sins of the world could be paid for through his death. And then he showed himself victorious three days later by rising from the dead and saying to his friends, here, look, see where the nails pierced me, see where the the spear pierced my side. He was seen by over 500 people who had known Jesus to have been publicly executed. And yet here he was walking around, right as rain, as if nothing had happened. Because Jesus died, we are called to believe. When Paul says that I am Paul, verse 1, a messenger of Christ Jesus, that is a shocking statement in and of itself. The apostle Paul, messenger of Christ, didn't start that way. He was Paul, then known as Saul, member of the Jewish ruling council, He was their young, up-and-coming star. He was the potential leader of the next generation. You know, every so often, somebody young and dynamic and charismatic comes along and you think, this is the future of our group or our tribe or our people or or our sport or whatever. Paul had all of that. And he saw Christians as a threat to the true and pure Jewish faith. And so he said, no, we're not having any of that. And he devoted his life to stamping out the proclamation of the good news of Jesus. He was an enemy of the gospel. And he did such a good job that they sent him from Jerusalem to the city of Damascus. And his goal there was to cause more trouble and put Christians in prison and have them beaten and if possible, put them to death. But while he was on his way to Damascus... He believed. The gospel was proclaimed to him. And everything changed. Because Jesus died, we have to come face to face with this reality. Over 500 people who knew Jesus to be publicly executed. Some of them were there in person. And there he was, three days later, risen from the dead. They interacted with him. Uh, John, the, uh, one of the other apostles, said, we, we saw him with our own eyes. We heard his voice with our own ears. We touched him with our own hands. He was there. And we have to come face to face with this idea. 
Is Jesus real? Did Jesus rise from the dead? What's the, what's the belief that I have about this claim? Every person is called to make a choice, believe or not believe. And because Jesus died, it forces us to make this choice. Do we believe? I believe that Jesus Christ lived, died, and lives again forevermore. But we aren't just called to believe the gospel. We're called to live in the gospel to God's holy people in Colossae, the faithful brothers and sisters in Christ. We talked about this a lot the last month or so in the book of Philippians. And we'll hit on it again because it is a constant theme of our Christian faith. That they lived holy, that is set apart, consecrated, sacred lives, faithful to God. We don't just believe in Jesus, but we live in that belief. Think about it this way. When I said I do on my wedding day, that was not the end of my marriage, right? That was the beginning. Believing in Jesus is just the beginning of our Christian experience, our Christian life, our our Christian faith. Saying I do on your wedding day is just the start. There's so much more to it. And we live, as if we're married, in light of that proclamation. We live in light of that idea. For Christians, the same is true. Saying I believe in Jesus is not, oh, that's it, that's all we do. But we live our lives in direct response to that proclamation of belief. We are called, because Jesus died and rose again, I can't just live complacently and say, I believe in Jesus, but I got stuff to do. No, I have stuff to do because I believe in Jesus. How can I encourage believers? How can I proclaim Jesus to unbelievers? How can I live my life in a way that is right and pleasing to God, the same God who loved me so much, that he gave everything for my salvation and for yours. Because Jesus died, we are called believe or don't believe. And for those of us who believe, then we are called to live in the gospel. And those of us who live in the gospel are called to proclaim the gospel. Paul is a messenger. That word again, apostle, just means messenger of Christ Jesus. Timothy was a messenger of Christ Jesus. The Christians in Colossae were messengers of Christ Jesus. We are called to believe, we are called to live, and we are called to proclaim. Because Jesus died and rose again, that demands a response. And so I could end right here and say, friend, do you believe that Jesus Christ died and rose from the dead? Do you believe that we are in desperate need of salvation? Do you believe that human beings cannot save themselves? We cannot fix all of the evil we've done in the past. And even if we did nothing but good the rest of our lives, the evil from our past would still need to be accounted for. I believe that. So I believe the only way for salvation is faith. And the grace of God that comes through that faith. 
And now that I believe that, I have to live in light of that. And since I'm living in light of that, I want other people to know the joy and the hope and the peace that we have found. So I proclaim. We are called, and we are called both personally and collectively. Verse 3, Paul says to them, we thank, we always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, because we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love that you have for all of God's people. The faith and the love that spring from the hope stored up for you in heaven and about which you have already heard in the true message of the gospel that has come to you. In the same way, the gospel is bearing fruit and is growing throughout the whole world, just as, as, as it has been doing among you since the day that you heard it and truly understood God's grace. You learned it from Epaphras, our dear fellow servant, who is a faithful minister of Christ and on our behalf, and who also told us of your love in the Spirit. For this reason, since the day we heard about you, we have not stopped praying for you. We continually ask God to fill you with the knowledge of his will through all the wisdom and understanding that the Spirit gives so that you may live a life worthy of the Lord and please him in every way, bearing fruit in every good work, growing in the knowledge of God, and being strengthened with all power in accordance to his glory, his glorious might so that you may have endurance and patience, and giving joyful thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of his holy people in the kingdom of light. For he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son he loves, in whom we have redemption and forgiveness of sins. Now, I think we see more clearly spelled out the three things I just talked about. We are called to believe, we are called to live in the gospel, we are called to proclaim the gospel. But what's interesting to me from verses 13, 3 through 14, verses 3 through 14, is this idea that we are called to believe and to live and to proclaim, but we are called both personally and collectively. We have to have a personal faith. The faith of my wife will not save me. The faith of my children will not save me. The faith of my parents or grandparents or brothers or cousins or whoever will not save me. Over the years, as I have preached the gospel, it has been incredible to me how many times I have said to somebody, what do you think about Jesus? And they say, oh, my grandmother prays. What do you think about Jesus? Oh, my, my parents are believers. Think about that. If somebody said to you, hey, what do you think about hot dogs? And then you say, oh, I don't know, my grandma, my grandma likes hot dogs. We, we would understand that that is a ridiculous answer to a question. Hey, what do you think about roundabouts? You know, roundabouts, those things where instead of four-way stops, you go in a big circle. And then if you're like uh, that movie from the 80s, you know, you just keep going around until you figure out which one you need to turn off of. What do you think about those? Oh, I don't know. My parents have opinions about that. You aren't answering the question. What do you think about that? What do you believe? We are called to respond to Jesus personally, individually. There is no other way by which somebody can have their sins forgiven. There is no other way by which somebody could enter heaven. There is no other way by which somebody could have a relationship with God. 
John chapter 14, verse 6, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. That means that the only way to go to God is through Jesus. And anyone else's faith won't work. That is hard for many cultures and peoples to believe. Because if you come from a collective culture, you think, I'm a Christian, my spouse is a Christian, our parents are Christians, of course our children will be Christians. They're born into a Christian family, into a Christian uh, people, and we will be Christians together. And maybe they are, and maybe they aren't. But people think of it in those terms. Mostly in America, we do not think in those terms. We are a highly individualistic society. So the idea that we have any kind of collective responsibility is foreign to us as a people. We very much gravitate to the personal faith part of our faith because it's individualistic and so are we. Of course, only my faith will save me. Of course, somebody else's faith has nothing to do with it because I'm my own person. That's how we think. But think about this. Verse 4, Paul says that they have never met the Christians in Colossae. They've only heard of them. They knew this guy, Epaphras. They knew him. He had had relationship with Paul and Timothy and others, and he went out and he preached the gospel in the city of Colossae, and the church was started, and now he's their pastor, and they've heard it from him. But they've never met them. They haven't been there yet. They just know about them. And yet, they care. They're important to them. The people in Colossae have never met Paul. Paul's never met them. But they're Christians. And he says, we're connected. We aren't alone. Verse 6, he says, the gospel has come to you individually. In the same way, the gospel is bearing fruit and growing throughout the whole world collectively. Just as, is, as it has been doing among you since the day you heard it and truly under God, understood God's grace individually. Verse 7, you learned it from Epaphras, our dear fellow servant, who is a faithful minister of Christ on our behalf and who told us of your love in the Spirit. Collectively, we all share that same work of God's Holy Spirit in our lives. Individually and collectively. The gospel is in us. It is, it is brought to us. We have to believe it individually. And yet it's spreading across the whole world. And it didn't matter that they had never physically met, that they'd never been in the same room. It didn't matter. What only mattered was that they shared the same faith. I have seen that lived out. I have been in other parts of the world, not spoken the same language, yet we have found out that we had the same faith. I remember once when I lived in England, being told by a friend, there's a, a brother named George, and he is from Malali. It's a small country in Africa. And he wants to go tell people about Jesus. Would you go out on the street with him and tell people about Jesus? I said, absolutely. So I went out on the street with him, and we just got into every conversation that we could. And here was this fella from 
Africa, and here's me from Seattle, Washington. We're both in England. We were joking how, you know, England had colonized both of our, our countries, and then now we were coming back to our former imperial masters and, and telling them about Jesus, the true king. I never saw him again. He was just passing through, and I had a wonderful time with him. I look forward to seeing him in heaven. All that mattered was we believed the same truth, that Jesus Christ lived, died, and rose again. And when he died, he paid for the sins of all humanity. That was what mattered. And I have seen that lived out time and time and time again. I have been at meetings where Christians from all different cultures and walks of life have gathered together and it hasn't mattered. I remember once being invited uh, to a meeting of, of African churches. I don't mean black churches, I mean African churches. These are people from Kenya and Nigeria and Malawi and other parts of Africa. And so there I am, admittedly, even among white dudes, I'm like the whitest dude there is. And, and they didn't care at all. Didn't care, care where I came from, what I looked like, anything. I was welcomed, I was embraced, I was invited. I shared the same faith. The same spirit was working in all of us. And yet sometimes the church acts like that's not the case. We will divide with other brothers and sisters when we shouldn't. When we should say, you know what? What's important is that Jesus has saved all of us. Verse 13, Paul tells them that they have been rescued from darkness and brought into the kingdom of the Son. We are rescued individually, but then once we're saved individually, we're brought into this collective family. And if we fail to see each other as that collective family, then we will get off track. I remember when I was a youth pastor, I was talking to a, a young man, and he was, he was saying how it was hard for him to come to church. I said, oh, okay, well, like, why? Because why? it's different for everybody, but what, what is it for you? And he was telling me, and we were talking, and as we were talking for a while, and I was listening to him, I said, you know what I think your problem is? What? I said, well, I don't think it's any of the things you've said. I think your problem is that you see church as a place that you go to, and it's not home base. And here's what I meant by that. My family is home base. When I go to somebody else's house, I'm not home. I'm a visitor. I'm a guest. I'm, I'm welcomed there, sure, but this isn't where my home base is. My home base is with my family, with my wife, my kids, even our dog, right? Like, that's home base. And church has always been home base. Not the building, but the people of God. Wherever I have lived, whatever I have done, I have always sought out the people of God because I have recognized that collectively we are, we're the home base, we're the team. And I said, I think what's going on for you, speaking to this young guy, is I think you like Jesus. And you say you believe in Jesus, and I'm not saying that's not true. But Jesus and his people aren't home base for you. The people of this world, the things of this world are still where you find your home. And he, he agreed with me, to be honest, that 
The people of God were not home base for him. The people of this world still were. All of us have to have a personal faith to be saved. All of us have to have a personal faith to know Jesus, to have entrance into his kingdom. But you got to enter and be part of the kingdom of God. The church is imperfect. I want to skip ahead to verse 24. Paul says, I rejoice in what I'm suffering for you, and I'm filled up in my flesh what is lacking in regard to Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, which is the church. Don't, don't hear what Paul's not saying. He is not saying that the sacrificial work of Jesus was incomplete on the cross. What he is saying is that as the church is the living embodiment of Jesus on earth, and as he is seeing the church being afflicted, and he himself, before he was a Christian, had been part of that affliction, part of that suffering, part of that beating, he's saying Jesus' body, still here on this earth, apparently has not had the fullness of the affliction it was meant to suffer. And he says, I'm part of that. It's reasonable to assume that right now he's in chains. Uh, Perhaps he's writing this letter at a similar time to when he was writing the church in uh, Philippi, the book of Philippians that we just studied. Could be. Like all books of the Bible, there's going to be different people telling you when something was written and when it wasn't. And usually it's because they've got a new book they're trying to sell. But uh, I don't have a strong opinion one way or the other. I'll just say this. The church is the living embodiment of Jesus here on the earth. And he's saying, I have become the church's servant, verse 25, by the commission that God gave me to present you the word of God in its fullness. So because he's trying to present the word of God, the message of Jesus, he is being filled up with affliction. He says, verse 26, the mystery that has been kept hidden for ages and generations, but now is disclosed to the Lord's people. To them, God has chosen to make known among the Gentiles the glorious riches of this mystery, which is Christ in you the hope of glory. He is the one we proclaim, admonishing and teaching everyone with all wisdom so that we may present everyone fully mature in Christ. To this end, I strenuously contend with all of the energy Christ so powerfully works in me. The church is the living embodiment of Jesus here on the earth. It is an imperfect expression of God's perfect work. Nobody knows the church's problems better than me. I'm, well, that's not true. I'm sure there's plenty of people that do. But I'm up there. I, I know, I know the church has problems. I know the church has issues. And yet, I still think it's the best place to be. I still think that being part of God's people and being among God's people is the best place to be. Now, I know people who have legitimate real trauma from a bad, unhealthy, (coughs) (coughs) or even toxic church experience. I know people who are not ready, and maybe that's you, who are not ready to be around church yet. That's cool. I'm not talking about Right now, I'm talking in the big picture. That I have found the church, the true church of Jesus is the real place to be. It's the best place to be. It's not perfect. 
They had problems even among the first Christians. Read the book of Acts. The first Christians had debates and squabbles and disagreements. Can the Samaritans be Christians? Can the Gentiles be Christians? Should we eat this meat or should we keep to the old covenant law? Hey, we're all Jews. The original Christians were all Jewish people. But the Jews from Israel seem to be getting treated better than the Christians who are Jewish, but from other parts of the world. There was inequities and things that were going on. It's never been perfect. It's always had issues because people are what make up the church. But it's an expression of God's perfect work. And it will be perfected. When Jesus comes again, this is what theologians call glorification. And it's a mystery. In verse 26 and 27, Paul says that the mystery is now being revealed. What does he mean by that? All through the Old Testament, the mystery of the church was hinted at. It's talked about. That God was going to do this bigger work than just a covenant with the Jewish people. You say, well, Adam, aren't the Jews still Jewish people? Or aren't the Jews, aren't the Jews, did I just say that? Aren't the Jews still the Jewish people? Yes. Aren't the Jews still God's chosen people? Also, yes. And you can go back and check out a Starting Points podcast where I talk about uh, how Israel fits in the Bible. And if you just search Faith on Hill or Faith on Hill Church on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or YouTube, you'll find us, Starting Points Podcast, that talks about that. But the church is the people of God. And God had a much bigger plan than just a city, Jerusalem, or just a nation, Israel, or just a people, the Jewish people. God had this bigger plan. And it was hinted at, and it was pointed to, but it was still mysterious, and the prophets and the the scribes and the teachers of the law, they tried to understand these things. Peter talks about how the prophets would prophesy things and then they were trying to figure out what it was God was telling them to say. And Paul's saying this mystery is now being revealed that God had this plan to save everyone and bring them into God's family. It's not perfect. It still has issues. But it's the best thing we got. And we are called personally and collectively into God's family, the kingdom of heaven, the church, Because Jesus is better. We skipped over verses 15 through 23, and I want to read them now. The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. In him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, meaning that Jesus was never created. He was incarnated. He came into this world. But from somewhere else, he has always been. He is equally God and therefore equally eternal. He is before all things and in him all things hold together. Verse 18, he is the head of the body, the church. The pastor is not the head of the church. Our denominational leaders are not the head of the church. Certainly not popes or priests or anyone else. Any Christian celebrity that people link to, they're not the head of the church. Jesus is the head of the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. 
For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile himself to all things, whether things on the earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior, but now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you wholly in his sight without blemish free from accusation. And if you continue in your faith, established and firm, and do not move from the hope held in the gospel, this is the gospel, the good news that you have heard and that has been proclaimed to every creature under heaven and of which I, Paul, have become a servant. Verses 15 through 20, Paul makes it clear. Without Jesus, there is no church, there's no Christian faith, If a church tries to have any reason for existence other than the proclamation and belief and submission to Jesus, it's off track, it's false, it's not a real church, it's not real faith. If personally I try to have faith in God apart from Jesus, then I do not have faith in God. I have faith in something false. Verses 21 through 22, he talks about how there is no path to God without Jesus. We were alienated, verse 21, from God, and we were enemies in our minds because of our evil behavior. But now God has reconciled us by Christ's physical body through death to present us holy in his sight. There's no church, there's no faith without Jesus, there's no path to God without Jesus. Verse 23. He says, if you continue in your faith established and firm and do not move from the hope held out in the gospel, there is no hope of salvation apart from Jesus. Does this mean that a person can lose their faith? Lose implies that God is the one who is rejecting us. It does imply that a person could walk away. My personal opinion is, as I have read the Bible and understood this, and I understood there has been debate throughout the centuries and millennia of Christian history that women and men who are far smarter and holier than I am have debated this and not agreed. But as near as I can tell, reading the Bible for as long as I have, I am assured of my salvation. You are assured of your salvation. There is nothing, Romans 8 tells us, the same person who wrote this verse about standing firm, is the same person who said in Romans 8, there is nothing that can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. I don't worry that one day I'm going to do something to make God stop loving me and I'll lose my salvation. But I have great respect for the reality that there are those who once professed faith in Jesus who now reject him. There are those who once professed faith in Jesus who now live as enemies of the gospel. There's a guy named Ryan Meeks. I've never met him. I hear he's a nice guy from people I know who have met him. And he was the pastor of what in the 2000s was one of the, let's call it, top five biggest churches in Washington State. I was living in Seattle at the time. It's where I grew up. And he was the pastor of one of the biggest churches in the whole state. And now he rejects the gospel. He publicly says, I do not believe in Christianity. 
There's another guy, pastor of one of the top five biggest churches in Washington State at the same time. He still believes in Jesus, and I will consider him my brother. But he is unrepentant in his sin. He's still a pastor in a different state, but he's unrepentant in his sin. What I'm saying is this. Just because somebody professes faith at one point in their lives, the beginning isn't the end. I said earlier that saying I do on my wedding day was not the end of my marriage or the culmination of my marriage. It was just the beginning. Living in that I do the rest of my life is the culmination of my marriage. If somebody says, oh, I think I'm going to heaven, but then lives a life that is at enmity with God, what assurance of salvation is that? Can you lose your salvation? I don't think so. But can, can you walk away? I'll tell you, that's what the Bible seems to be saying here and several other places. And if you don't agree with me, that's fine. That's far from the biggest thing I, I think we could divide over. But I'll say this. Because Jesus died, we are called both individually or personally, we are called collectively as the family of God to be God's family and to live and believe and proclaim this truth and hold firm to it and stay steadfast in it because Jesus is better. Jesus is better than the politics that tempts us. Jesus is better than the sensuality that tempts us. Jesus is better than the riches that tempt us. He is better than whatever is out there calling us away. Jesus is better. God bless you. I hope you have a great week. If you, if you can, join us next Sunday for Sides Giving. It's a lot of fun. And we'll see you throughout the week in the small groups. We'll see you next Sunday as we continue studying the book of Colossians together. You you